house. No, the right no, house. I did it. Get we want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. I came home, an outlaw. We do what we want to do. We'll go where we want to go. Give us the money. I don't want to be a gangster. I stopped kissing rings a long time ago. It no longer matters what you want. You're in this life. My father says there once was a good man in you. We all find ourselves in lives we didn't expect. Repent. 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 Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast that has styled a suitcase to commemorate the time we spent under the wing of a Russian grifter. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I'm your host, Joe Reed. I'm here, as always, with my Hollywood harlot-turned-charismatic preacher, Chris File. That was a mouthful. Hello, Chris! <laughs> uh... Brother Reed, how are you today? Um, I, I'm a preacher. I have to find some type of um, Jesus. Yes. Thing. Show show us your track marks to uh, to com- communicate your authenticity. To show my um, my sovereignty or yeah. What is that? What religion is sovereignty? Eh, sovereignty is more like a governmental, uh, uh, you know, ruling whatever. Well, Elle Fanning did try to have some type of government rule, or I guess. She was trying to not get the casino pass, so that is some type of like. Yeah, you know, she was dipping her finger power. in uh, in political, uh, you know, corporate affairs or whatnot. I should say I meant I said you are a Hollywood harlot, but of course I should uh, clarify that you are a Los Angeles harlot because mm-hmm. she didn't. And the church she didn't, that she I didn't preach make at it. is like the Church of Cher, right? <laughs> right. That line though, where Affleck hands Chris Cooper the photos and he's like, "She didn't make it to Hollywood; she only made it to Los Angeles," and I'm like. I get that that's supposed to sound like a really, like, clever line, but I don't know if it entirely tracks, considering, like, Hollywood kind of communicates these fallen angel storylines, too. Do you know what I mean? I'm not quite sure what the, you know, what the delineation there between Hollywood and Los Angeles was, but whatever. Whatever, Ben. I did not like this movie. movie. (laughs) I hated this movie. I hated this movie! Okay, good. It's been a long time since... (sighs) You could hate something with your full chest. With my full chest, I hated this movie. Yeah. It I mean, I think maybe it's one of those movies that like should have been longer, but like it really struggled even for like I'm doing this for my podcast. I'm trying to pay attention. Really struggled to hold my interest in a way that we haven't had in a movie since like Random Hearts. Wow. Um, That is a statement right there. I struggle to tell, like, competing crime fa- factions apart from each other. Well, first of all, it takes them 35 minutes to get to Florida, which is when the actual plot of the movie starts. And I uh-huh. couldn't tell you a single goddamn thing that happens in that first 35 minutes, except for maybe that, like, Sienna Miller turns on him. Like, that's the only really thing that I remember from the uh-huh. first 35 minutes of this movie. 
We talk and a lot. It's also just like it's dull too. So like, oh yeah, you can't tell things apart because it is so yeah dull. And well, like, and it's we've seen all of this stuff in so many other movies. Like all of it seems mm-hmm. sort of like like listlessly recycled from other things. Like even the idea of like, oh, it's like a mafia thing, but in Florida, and it's just like, yeah, but like the Godfather Two was in Cuba for a while, and like yada yada yada. Like there are all these other things, and we talk a lot on this podcast uh, about films that we could see these days. And I say these days, meaning this film was four and a half years ago. Um, these That's days, time ago, movies being probably um would have been television shows do you know what i mean today and this mm-hmm. is the kind of thing that feels like that except for i'm normally i'm just like it would have been that's almost like oh if only this could have been a television show it maybe could have been like better like flesh out or whatever with this i'm just like thank god this wasn't a television show because it would have there been there are television shows like this and of nobody course there watches are. them boardwalk empire HBO's did like had a this bunch of shows like this yeah i recapped boardwalk empire for like four seasons and it was exactly like this except for and when you recap a show especially as i did for television without pity with these like long form recaps you do form a kind of um george and martha kind of relationship with it where you're just like you're living with it but you really really can't stand it and yet also you can't at the same time envision your life without it because it's steady paycheck every week but like (laughs) my relationship with boardwalk empire was a lot like that where i was just like I don't even know if I think this is a bad show. I'm just so fucking sick of like day in and day out with these mobster characters who are just like, it's the same. There was this, I think the Sopranos, Sopranos did not invent this, but the Sopranos certainly popularized it among this golden age of television where we're going to have these antiheroes, criminals, mobsters, gangsters, drug dealers, yada, 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 whatever permutation you want to say it, where it's like, Everybody on this canvas is like a hair trigger sociopath where like if you say the <laughs> wrong thing, they're going to cave your skull in with the nearest blunt object. And it's just like at some point it becomes so tedious of just sort of waiting around for somebody to like say the wrong thing to Steve Buscemi and he's going to fucking snap on them or like whatever Bobby Cannavale in that one season of Boardwalk Empire where he won the Emmy for just like being fucking loud. And I was just like, and it so burned me out on all kinds of TV shows about mobsters, drug dealers, whatever. And so I'm watching something like this and I know that like the things that it's pulling from are not like, Sopranos, Boardwalk Empire, modern day stuff. It's really in every single interview that Ben Affleck gave about this movie. He talked about, you know, 40s and 30s and 40s gangster films and, you know, old style. And I think mostly what he meant, I'm thinking uncharitably, is like the suits, I guess. Like everybody wore a nice suit. <laughs> um, Production design. Right. Um, so he want, I think he wants to sort of like recall that whole kind of thing and an elegance. And yet the language of this movie is just like middle of the road, modern day mob. It's incredibly limited interpretation of what those influences are. Like even back to what you were just saying, like these vague mob characters, like I think what a lot of C tier, uh, C tier is maybe being generous to this (laughs) movie. Um, what these like C tier mob and crime movies really miss out on is like a lot of the 
best movies that they're trying to emulate, a lot of the Scorsese movies, like character and characterization is so incredibly important to yes. keep yes. things compelling. And it's yes. like you can't tell people apart in this movie. Yeah. You really can't even tell uh, how Ben Affleck's character is significant to all of the drama. Um it, it's just like, what do you like it? All of the things that we love about those like crime movies, when you see something like this, it's like, well, wait, what did you love? Do you just like watching movies and with guys in suits and fedoras? Like, yeah, yeah. It, it, is that all you're trying to uh, I like this, the, the spin that Ben Affleck puts on this is like, what if he's wearing a cream-colored suit and fedora? And it's just like, okay. <laughs> like, here we go, man. This is all brand new stuff. Like, even the stuff what with, if like... there was vague racial and nationalist tensions? Well, this is the other thing. Is like... And again, I'm not going to interpret Live by Night solely through a, you know racial lens because whatever it's barely doing that but like when you make a movie where you know prominent characters are the clan and prominent plot points involve the clan and racism and there's a lot of racist dialogue in this by bad people but like when you make the um crusader against that and the recipient of a lot of that racist violence be ben affleck like fuck off i do not (laughs) care about this like jesus fucking christ like i mean it is about those things and it's not about those things like the kkk is so fairly like so easily like dispatched and pushed aside in this plot and it's like but that's the kkk right and they're like nope we killed that one guy right yep Um, yep and there was literally a part where it was just like and the kkk was never a problem again and i'm like really (laughs) okay good for tampa i guess well i mean like the movie and maybe this is more of the source material too and like it is a lot about like irish and italian tensions which like which half mob movies are yeah yeah, but this movie doesn't do it well. It doesn't capture it well. It uh, like let me tell really you what a mob movie loves. In... Sorry, go ahead, finish it. No, go ahead. I was just gonna say, let me tell you what a mob movie loves is reminding you that Italian people used to be discriminated against on an ethnic basis in this and country, and Irish people, and Irish people yeah. used to be discriminated against on an ethnic basis in this country. Like they really, really do love to talk about that a lot, and it's I've really made interesting. people mad yeah. before by saying, "I'm sorry, I can't distinguish different types of white people." But literally in this movie, I couldn't distinguish the different types of white people. And like, yeah, like not denying that history, but just like, no, not at all. It, let's put it in some perspective, y'all. And it's like, it's not like this movie isn't also trading in stereotypes. It's not like I want these, like, gauche portraitures of, like, different national backgrounds in America. But, like, I don't know. The the most characterization that anybody gets in this movie to distinguish who they are, other than uh, Ben Affleck just, like, scowling throughout the movie is Chris Messina gets like an ever expanding assortment of throw pillows that (laughs) creates a fat suit. Like, you know, what's so funny. I was, I watched a handful of sort of press clips from this movie, uh, interviews that uh, junket interview type stuff, which was essentially the extent of the publicity. I think that Affleck ended up doing for this movie. He was on the today show with like, he and the cast were on the today show with like Jenna Bush Hager or whatever. And, but a lot of, a lot of the um, junkety stuff talked about Messina 
and Messina's performance. And now he was with, he had been in Argo and Affleck really liked him so much in Argo and he wanted to, you know, cast him in this movie. And, you know, the only question was what role to give him. And I'm just like, I, I do, you wonder speaking, talking about it from the lens that we talk about it is like, if this movie had been a thing and existed at all, which we'll talk about what an absolute blip on the radar this movie was when it actually got released. Um, if Messina would have been pushed for a supporting actor kind of a thing because he was he was absolutely the supporting cast member that was talked about the most. And sometimes you can tell, especially in junkety kind of things, with um what are the public the the talking points that the publicists really want to get talked about. And like Messina certainly seemed to be one of them. And that was kind of surprising because, like, he's not bad. I love Chris Messina. Don't we all love Chris Messina? But, like, I don't think there's anything particularly special about that character or that No, not at all. I couldn't even tell, really. And I love Chris Messina. I couldn't really... I mean, like, he was the one who was given the big thing to do. They definitely give him some teeth stuff at one point. Yes, they do. Who was he? Right. I thought for a second... When they, I mean, whatever, spoiler, and we'll get on the other side of the plot description in a second. Um, when he comes in and he tells Affleck, Affleck, who had uh, previously basically given the order that Dakota Fanning's character wasn't to be knocked off, even though that was the prudent thing to do from a mobster's perspective. Um, and then Messina comes in the one day after Affleck and Fanning have their sort of heart-to-heart conversation. And tells him, hands him the newspaper and says she had killed herself. And I'm like, oh, they're going to reveal that it was Messina who went back and defied orders and killed her for the good of the whatever. And that's going to be like a conflict. And they're like, nope, it wasn't. And like, there just wasn't any conflict between the two of them. It was just like, eventually Affleck retires and gives the business to Messina. And that's all she wrote there. And it's like, okay, well, cool, cool story, mobsters. (laughs) Um. Before we get into the plot description, though, I just want to talk about the Dennis Lehane of it all. We can talk about sort of the production history of it a little bit, where this is a novel, 2012 novel by Dennis Lehane. Dennis Lehane, if you don't recognize the name, was the writer of uh, Mystic River, which obviously did big Oscar stuff in uh, in 2003 for Clint Eastwood. He wrote the novel for Shutter Island, which was uh, adapted by Martin Scorsese. He wrote the novel for Gone Baby Gone, significantly, which was uh, uh, adapted by Ben Affleck for his feature film debut, and obviously like did a lot for boosting him into you know, where he became and ultimately mm-hmm. as an Oscar winner. I guess he doesn't have any writing credit on the town, which is surprising because the town fits very much into the like Boston crime genre that Ben Affleck really mm-hmm. has enjoyed um, existing in. And so he writes Live My Night, uh, released in 2012. Apparently it's the middle book of a series of books about the Coughlin family, which, okay. Um, I did not care to investigate what the other ones were, but I imagine one of them was maybe about his father, and one of them is maybe about his son. Who the hell knows? Um, but book published in 2012, and then almost immediately, because he has a good track record for uh, book-to-film adaptations, people are looking to... Uh, adapt it made one of the major ones being Leonardo DiCaprio's production company, which now I can't remember what that production company is called, but 
Um, Apian Way, is he Apian Way? Right? Maybe. I think so. I'm going to file that one away for next time we place categories. Um, <laughs> so, and originally we thought maybe it was going to be another... I think briefly there was talk of it being another DiCaprio Scorsese movie because anytime Leonardo DiCaprio attaches himself to anything, people are like, is this going to be the next Leonardo DiCaprio Martin Scorsese movie? And ultimately in 2015, Warner Brothers greenlit the film as a, uh, as an Affleck thing. Um, Maybe mm-hmm. even before that. And Affleck, we're going to talk about later on, Ben Affleck's 2016, which is chaotic as fuck. Um, as a hella. Oof. All right. Um, but before we do all of that, is there anything... Wait, do, talk to me about Dennis Lehane. What are your feelings about Dennis Lehane's uh, books turned Never films? read any of the, the books. I was curious about this one because it... I mean, it's partly set in Boston, but I was like, oh, maybe this one will be different yeah um because it um is mostly set in florida um this definitely felt like the type of adaptation where some of these things that like it feels like the movie's trying to get everything in there so it makes a lot of these connections a lot of these relationships seem really flimsy and disposable but there's probably a lot more um heft to it on the page yeah um or like some type of internal monologue or some type of like more richly developed relationships, but it just felt like it either needed to be longer and go into more depth with that, or it needed to cut like whole characters. Yeah. When I say it needed to cut whole characters, part of the movie's problem is it feels like it could be any one of those characters they could just get rid of. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's, it's not one of those movies that seems very obviously to be based on a novel for me. In fact, when I initially saw the writing credit was Ben Affleck, I was like, Oh God, did Ben Affleck like come up with all of this on his own? Like, um, (laughs) and then of course I saw the Dennis Lane thing and I was just like, ah, right, 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 right. Um, but it, yeah, I think you're, I think you're accurate in your, uh, in your assessment of it. Lane, I, the only novel of his I ever read was Mystic River. I read that in between when Mystic River premiered at Cannes, right? May it, that or New York, I think. I think it must that have been Cannes because I had that interim period where I was like, I knew it was going to be getting released soon and I want to read it before the movie comes out. So I read the book, gotcha. which is part, which is a big part of my problem with Tim Robbins winning the Oscar for Mystic River is I thought he really flattened that character from what the character was in the book. I don't think it's a great book. It's, you know, it's a, you know, pot boiler kind of a thing, but I thought the character was much more nuanced in the book and more interesting as a result. And I really thought that Robbins kind of cartooned him up. Um, And also the Laura Linney sort of uh, Lady Macbeth turn at the end is a lot more, you're prepared for it a lot more in the book, which Mm -hmm. um, was an interesting thing. But anyway, I haven't read any of his other books. I think there's a sense of diminishing returns, especially as the kind of, again, Boston crime element of it becomes a lot more perfunctory, where... and. This is sort of, I don't want to get into a whole Boston thing again because I get make people mad and justifiably so. But there's a sense of, you know how people get mad at New Yorkers for being enamored of the fact that they're, they live in New York? Which, like, fair enough, we are. Whatever. And I say we as, like, a person sure. who moved to New York City in my late 20s. So, like, I do not have a claim on that place. Um, 
But this is sort of how I feel like, man, like Boston people really love talking about how they're from Boston. And Boston seems like a cool city, man. I guess, I but just like there's the, I got a bunch of friends in Boston. I should go. I do too. And I love my friends in Boston. But just like there's there's a sense of like this Ben Affleck thing where it's just like, I'm going to set this movie and put it, put as many scenes in a Dunkin' Donuts as I possibly can. And that then I'm going to call it the town. And okay. I'm just like, but you need to separate the two. There's two different types of. There is Ben Affleck who loves uh, the city of Boston, and then it's everyone else because Ben. When right. Ben Affleck this is sort of what it, I'm getting at. Yes, it's annoying, <laughs> but like literally everybody else in the world is fine. Sure. Yes, everybody else in the entire world is fine. There are no other problematic people in Boston, Massachusetts. Um. It- well, no, but but what I'm saying is like 75 percent of Ben Affleck's personality is. I live in Boston. Right. He lives in and this Boston. is the sort of thing that I tend to get from the Dennis Lehane stuff, where it's just like nobody lives as authentic as a life, as authentic a life <laughs> as somebody who grew up working class in Boston, Massachusetts. Do you know what I mean? There's that kind of a thing. And it's just like, okay, Dennis, like we get it. Um, and there's a sense of that too, where it's just like he has his, you know, his father's a cop. There was strong moral fiber, and look how far this, you know, good upstanding Boston boy has fallen. And, like, the poster for this movie is, first of all, it's Ben Affleck in the iconic cream-colored suit, which we've talked about, um, pointing a gun, sitting in an armchair and pointing a gun at whoever's, you know, facing him. And then the tagline above the title, in, like, these very kind of prominent letters and uh, sort of spaced out joe has joe was once a good man and first of all was he like we kind of don't know we have no frame of reference we are i mean you get that opening narration where he he talks went to about war he was in the war sure like i guess like and then immediately came and started bootlegging right exactly but like that's the thing is like from like minute two of this movie he's already like a criminal and it's like the so there are good criminals, of course, but it's just like I, Joe was once a good man. Sort of implies this thing of just like this that the movie is about the moral sort of tumbling down a hill of a once good man, and I'm like, that's not really true. But again, it yeah, that's not what this movie's about. It falls into that line also, of just like this is the kind of movie where like we're supposed to believe that he is actually a good person because a woman at some point says, I know you do all of this, yes. but really you're a good person. Can somebody, it is that type of movie. Can somebody make a supercut of that, by the way, of characters, particularly women in movies, assuring the male main characters that they're good people? Like, there's, it hap- it's such a trope, and I really, it's very annoying. It's quite annoying. Um, especially because we'll get into this too like my perception of ben affleck is as a filmmaker especially when he directs himself in a film is that there's just like there's a lot of ego involved and there's a lot of like carefully maintaining his sort of star persona in a way that i find limiting to the films but we can talk about that on the other side of the plot description which i'm going to make you do right now so let me pull out oh boy Let's see how much I can get in. <laughs> I mean, yeah, there's a lot of it's a lot of movie. All right. Um, one minute on the clock. Live by Night, of course, written and directed by Ben Affleck, adapted from the novel by Dennis Lehane, starring Ben Affleck, Chris Messina, Zoe Saldana, Chris Cooper, Elle Fanning, Sienna Miller, Max Casella, Brendan Gleeson, Remo Giron, Robert Glenister. It premiered on Christmas Day, December 25th, 2016. 
uh, to very little fanfare, as it turned out. Uh, Chris, would you like to grace us with 60 seconds worth of plot from Live By Night? Sure. (laughs) With that hesitant sure, I will send you into your minute, which starts now. Okay, Live By Night stars Ben Affleck as Joe, a bootlegger and son of an Irish Boston police chief. He's secretly in love with the daughter of the Irish crime boss. Her name's Emma White. She's played by Sienna Miller. Uh, the Italian mob blackmails him into getting him to kill Emma's dad, uh, but they go on the run in California after Joe kills some cops in a bank heist. Uh, Emma sells him out to her dad. He goes to jail, and then he is told that Emma is dead. Um, when he's out of jail, he's recruited by an Italian uh, crime boss, Pescatore. He runs things in Tampa, um, where he quickly falls in love with Zoe Saldana. She's an Afro- 30 seconds. Uh, Afro-Cuban. Cuban woman. Her name's Graciela. Um, and then he uh, gets to uh, close the sheriff who's... Um, he gets close to the sheriff um, whose daughter is named Loretta. She wants to be an actress. She ends up addicted to heroin and he like helps her get off heroin, whatever. Um, meanwhile, Prohibition ends and Loretta seconds. finds Jesus and she's a big stumbling block to getting them a casino in Tampa. Uh, but she kills herself and then he finds out that Emma is alive. Um, and then in a raid, Joe kills all of Pescator's people. Um, and uh, turns out Emma is a prostitute. Um, That's time, yeah, and then uh, his son is killed by Loretta's dad, or his wife is killed by Loretta's dad, and he raises his son. He sure does. He sure does raise that son. Yeah. Sorry, I gave you a fifteen-second warning instead of a ten-second warning. I don't know where my brain was at at that moment, but okay. Um, no, it's fine. It's fine. Yeah. Live my night. So yeah, the last sort of ten minutes of this movie are like epilogue on steroids kind of thing. Where like a, a, mm-hmm. once there's that shootout at the hotel, once that is sort of settled. Then it's like, all right, now we're going to get into the wrap-up. And the wrap-up just sort of, like, goes and goes and goes. And we talk, you know, he hands over the business to Messina, and he settles down and has a kid with Zoe Saldana. And they, you know, Chris Cooper is sort of slowly decompensating over the guilt of what happened to his daughter. (laughs) And then, you know, tragedy sort of happens. And again, this character, Graciela, who is underwritten as it is in this film and shows up again to tell Ben Affleck to uh, uh, hook up with Ben Affleck and sort of, um, you know, burnish his bona fides as a, as a charismatic and sexy leading man Um, has one scene where she's like, I want to be your wife. Then the next scene is like, I don't think she should be a criminal. And it's just like, (laughs) where are these things coming from? And then has another scene that's just like, you're a good man. And then they just kill her so that they give him sort of a tragic end, a tragic hero's end. And it's just like, this is all so, A, recycled from other things, and B, just like very thin. And like nothing, like there's no heft emotionally to her dying because like we barely knew her as a character at this point mm-hmm. i don't know i don't know <sighs> dialect queen sienna miller um, oh my god okay so we should talk about how one of the problems of this movie is that um the plot hinges on sienna miller being recognizable okay wrote that down because fully wild you're absolutely <laughs> right the fact that she's presumed Not dead she but like She's presumed dead for, like, the middle hour and a half of this movie. And then he sees a photograph from, like, across a room. And he's like, what the hell is that? And it's just like, what? And first of all, photographs in 19... 
20 or whenever the hell this is. Photographs back then are not the, you know, high definition, pristine quality that they are now. But like from across a room, he's just like, what the hell is going on? And he goes and he looks at the photo. And again, you're right, recognizes Sienna Miller from her face, which is categorically impossible to do. Sienna Miller face blindness is a real condition and it affects everybody. I will say that. Absolutely everybody. The second I saw her character in this movie, I'm like, oh, Kelly Riley? Uh, uh, Emma Caulfield? Like, what's going on? What's happening here? And of course it is, uh, once I realized it was Sienna, I kind of lived because her Irish accent is bananas. It's so much fun. Not as nanners as her cat on a hot tin roof. Of course. Living with someone you love is like, uh, (laughs) living entirely alone. Living with someone you love can be lonelier than living entirely alone if the one that you love doesn't love you. And then by the time he finds her again at the end of the movie, which is this weird scene of just like, he needs to see her to see sort of how uh, callous and trashy she is to, to make peace with the fact that he made the right choice that he like settled with the right woman or whatever, which I think is annoying. Um, But she becomes in that scene, the Blake lively in the town of live by night, which is the only (laughs) portion of live by night where I was kind of living for it because she's just like, she's, kind of fabulous in that scene and i'm just like oh this is this is this yeah. is what i want is give me trash give me this trash obviously blake lively is the best part of the town and um so yeah that connection was pretty Very clear true. for me um yeah sienna miller face blindness is absolutely the first note i have uh in this <laughs> um it's too bad that she's not in more of the movie i want to talk about let's we should do the ben affleck thing off of the top so where are you with Ben Affleck as a, as a talent, as a, as an artist or as a celebrity or as all of it? Okay. As a celebrity, very different. Um, and maybe this is just a recency thing, but I, the whole, um, Ana de Armas relationship, all of their, their donkeys, um, I, I was obsessed with. You were tickled with Um, that. Okay. All right. I was very tickled with that. And like, we should mention Ben Affleck's in recovery. We wish him well with the recovery. As far as like a movie star goes, I'm going to need something else. Um, I mean, like, I don't maybe want to get too much into The Way Back, his movie this year, because I'm sure we'll talk about it in our Class of 2020 episode. I hated that movie. I thought it got this weird free pass for like reinforcing uh, as much bad as it did good. I, I, yeah. And it was also just a movie of like masculinity and this grown man yelling at children. Um, that way it was another movie that I feel like I've seen this movie 20 times. Like there there wasn't a whole exactly. lot in that movie that I feel like I hadn't seen. And also like God bless Gavin O'Connor. I liked the hockey movie that he made as well. But like he he gets into these sort of, you know, um uh contemporary poems about tragic masculinity and I'm just like I buddy like cool good for you but like i don't care (laughs) super don't care um affleck to me i always try and try to check myself with affleck because i know that a lot of my feelings about him as a artist as an artist are wrapped up in my feelings about him as a celebrity where like i have never Mm -hmm. liked him as a celebrity even back in like the i think the the you know, Ben and Matt, Goodwill Hunting Days, like, as everybody did, I got caught up in that thing, too. And I really enjoyed him. And then whenever I would hear him on 
commentary which i know some people really enjoyed like him on like armageddon or whatever uh, the director's comment the cast commentary for that movie um or like interviewed about a thing or sort of talking about his career or the way that like you know shows up on um that the bill simmons talk show on hbo and like goes ham about tom brady or whatever and like all these things that some people find like endearing about him for being such a like you know the uber uber mensch mass hole of uh, of the world um mm-hmm. i just annoys me he's always annoyed me he's always <laughs> come across as very sort of egotistical and self-regarding and not in a way that i find uh, is backed up by the work i you know liked argo well enough there's a I lot of really... homogeny to his performances yes and i think like i i enjoyed the pivot in Gone Baby Gone to being a director and especially a director of something that he wasn't mm-hmm. starring in. And the fact that he then went right from that, like he, he couldn't, he couldn't stay off screen for one movie. Like it was the, immediately <laughs> he goes and he makes the town and he casts himself as the lead in the town. And I think the town for as much as other people seem to enjoy it, I really didn't. And I think it's a better movie if he's not in it for sure. I think Argo I mean, is like, a better movie also if he's not in it. And I liked Argo. I thought Argo was fine. Mm-hmm. And I think the fact that in Argo, again, I've talked about this before, where the closing credits of Argo show you how much the cast of character actors closely resembles the the real life people who they played, you know, the uh, um, Scoot McNary and Cleo Duvall and all of these people. And then it's Ben Affleck. And it's like, no, Ben Affleck has decided to cast himself and his sort of like, you know, uh, conspicuously revealed torso in one scene as just this character who... One of the good days online was when everybody decided this would be the day we would make fun of Ben Affleck for randomly giving himself a scene in Argo to show his pecs. Yeah. Yes. And it's and and again, that to me encapsulates the Ben Affleck issues with with Ben Affleck to a T. And like I understand that other people sort of see his sort of that that degree of celebrity self-obsession is something that I appreciate in maybe other people more than I do in Affleck and I like I will own that like there's just something about him that has always bugged me. But I also don't think I think he's... Live by Night is kind of this weird directorial anomaly thing because i do think his other movies do get character right and do get narrative arc right like if there's yeah, anything that yes. i appreciate most as ben most from ben affleck is it is his directorial career even if it's just like you know we're not jumping up and down about any of these movies he does like have the makings of a solid studio director to make like yes. these type of movies yes. if he can get out of his own spotlight a little bit um, right i think there's I think on certain people, ambition wears well, and on others, it doesn't. And I think, like, that sounds like a really shitty thing to say about somebody, but, like, I think that's true of Ben Affleck, whereas I think Argo is a real, just a real solid top-to-bottom movie. And you can be annoyed by certain things about Argo, and um, but I think that is, like, a well-put-together movie that moves things from A to B to C, and, you know captivates the audience and takes you on a ride with it and all that sort of stuff and i think then with live by night where he's just like well my next movie is going to be uh the godfather and havana sort of you know uh 
all wrapped up into one. And it's just like, my friend, like, let's scale it back down. Let's just like, let's, let's put that ambition down a little bit because it's not your strong suit. It's not your strong cream colored suit, my friend. Um, yeah. The Argo shadow kind of looms large over um, this movie. Because in a weird way, like, Argo did... It, I think people who were actually paying attention never doubted that Argo would be getting Best Picture even when he lost out on Best Director. Yes. But it did kind of give it this sheen that kind of really pushed it across the finish line where it was looked at a little bit as an underdog because yes. it didn't have the yes. Best Director nomination. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and I, we talked about this recently, but we I did. can't remember what episode it was where it was the Critics' Choice the day of the Oscar nominations. Right. And like... Got the standing. It was a, it was an Irish it was an Irish wake for Ben Affleck. Really, at that point, it was just like <laughs> it was a celebration of a life, and yeah, yes. So, and the thing, so the thing about Live by Night though is this is it had been in the works for a while, and it was sort of the next Ben Affleck movie, which like the next movie from a director of a Best Picture winner is always going to be really really anticipated, and. Is my memory wrong that this movie got announced for a December release sort of partway into 2016? Like, this wasn't, like, a year ahead of time. I don't think this was on the schedule. Was it? It was, but it It was was. originally, for, it got announced late for December, but I think the expectation was always there as the movie would be finished that it would probably get bumped up into the award season because it was always announced as a January movie, which should have stayed a January movie because it plays (laughs) like a January movie. Gangster Um, Squad 2.0. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But even before then, it was slated for like a fall release and a fall release of like the next year. It was shuffled around a lot. But as soon as... And you saw this with a couple other movies, too. Um, I just I'm struggling to remember certain ones where it was like, because we'll get into the Batman versus Superman thing. But like, oh, we will post-production going on while Batman versus Superman is doing full press and um, like a inevitable reshoots too um so like you can understand why this would have had some flux in its release date but it was one of those movies that it's like oh you've slotted this for january but the expectation is probably that you're going to do a limited release at the end of the year right to qualify it qualifying releases a thing that people think was invented in this past year and got pissed off about it truly i mean existed since the 80s speak on this yes yes so what i find so interesting about ben affleck's 2016 is like so the the jennifer lopez relationship with him really sort of like crystallized a lot of his persona i feel like in the in the media and the public or whatever and there was such a backlash against that and you know Geely happens and his sort of early 2000s acting roles are just like it's just you know beat down upon beat down about upon beat down of just like he makes daredevil which doesn't you know do what people wanted it to do he makes Geely, he makes paycheck he makes surviving christmas um jersey girl and then sort of like goes away for a few years gets hollywood land which is like oh he's gonna be 
kind of a character actor now or something and gets a Golden Globe nomination and people, you know... Hollywoodland did a lot to, like, revive his career as an actor. Yes, but then he follows that up with... Well, that's the same year as Smoking Aces, which, like, is, again, is just, like, junk. But then, like, he, if you know, revives his career as an actor and yet that next year is Gone Baby Gone and it's just like, oh, this is cool. This is a cool little, you know, new thing for Affleck is he could, maybe he's a director and because he still isn't able to come up with a hit as an actor with a state of play, which like we'll talk about, we'll do an episode on that eventually, but like that doesn't really happen for him and like the company men, although the company men is after the town, but like, so the town comes very close to being an Oscar nominee it's not a massive success, but like people like that's a successful directorial effort by Ben Affleck is what the general consensus about the town is. And it's the next stepping stone to Argo and all of that stuff with Argo happens. He wins best picture. He, you know, talks about how hard it is to be married to Jennifer Garner. He, you know, thanks Hollywood for, you know, getting him past the lean years, all of this sort of stuff that he did in his speech. And then it's just like, Oh, well now Ben Affleck's going to be, a director cool and he sort of intimates that just like this is what i you know really want to do and then what's so funny is he goes hard right back into acting pretty much immediately thereafter where he gets gone girl and then and gone girl performance of his career best performance of his career he's fantastic he weirdly like doesn't get any awards buzz for that movie even though rosamund pike got a lot of and eventually got the best actress nomination None of the buzz is for Ben Affleck, which is weird because it's perfect. And I wonder sometimes if it's too perfect. If it was it's too perfect because like it's it, David Fincher is so smart. And I think like this, I did give Ben Affleck a little bit of credit during like the press run of that movie because like his casting alone in that movie is very um, aware of our perceptions of Ben Affleck, that he yes. is an asshole and that he's, yes. Uh, you know not a likable person and like the movie works better because it weaponizes that yeah it does and like i think ben affleck was very gracious about that and very smart and i think ultimately that performance is really funny um because of all of that and yeah um it's and it makes sense i think that's exactly why he didn't get credit for it because it's already playing into right that you know so it makes sense that he would be drawn away from maybe directing his next thing to do something like Gone Girl, which is, a, you know, in many ways a role of a lifetime for him, right? What makes less sense to a lot of people is that he takes the role of Batman, Bruce Wayne, in the Ooh. Batman versus Superman sort of new Zack Snyder uh DC cinematic burgeoning DC cinematic universe and i think a lot of people and again whatever actors don't know us explanations for why they take roles in films but like i think a lot of people were just like you have this now flourishing directorial career you can make anything as your next project cuz you're a best picture winner like you've got you know to coin a phrase a blank check and instead what you're going to do with your time is you are going to play like not only like play Batman in the next movie, but, like, play the single most, like, 
joyless, like tired, weary, sort mm-hmm. of like like a human sigh of a Batman in these next movies. And it's just like, and not only are you going to do Batman versus Superman Dawn of Justice in 2016, you're also going to show up in Suicide Squad, and you're also going to make The Accountant with, uh, who is that director? Um, oh, that's also Gavin O'Connor. The Ben Affleck, uh-huh. Gavin O'Connor cinematic universe. Um, which is a movie that, like, I think I remembered it being more hated than it was. I think the reviews were very mixed, and it was a lot of just, like, puzzlement. I feel like when I'm looking back at those reviews, I think a lot of people are just like, what is, what, what's happening here? What's going on? What's this supposed to be? Um, and it's just but like... also on top of that, he was initially supposed to do the Batman standalone movie that he was also going to direct. Right. Which was going to be, and then it evolved into Matt Reeves directing, and then it got completely overhauled to the movie that Matt Reeves is now doing. Right, but like, it it's still. I could be wrong. Yeah, it's Matt Reeves. Uh, The Pattons, okay, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, Batman who fucks. Listen, we all want it. Um, Evanescence Batman, wake (laughs) me up inside. Yes. So. I think, yeah, so I think by the time Affleck sort of, like, dons the cowl, as it were, um, there's just, there's a lot of just puzzlement of just, like, why? Why why are we, why are you, why are you doing this? What's going on? I mean, on? at that point, he, he'd made two hit movies for Warner Brothers and got them a Best Picture um, winner. Yeah. He'd kind of gotten to be, like, the Warner Brothers golden child for a minute. And, like, all of this is obviously conjecture, too. Sure, yes. You have to imagine that the Batman deal, they probably wanted somebody who they already had as one of their people playing that incredibly integral role to the corporation. Yeah. Um, But you can see how there were probably strings attached, like a directorial credit for his standalone one and i would not be surprised if live by night was part of that that they would finance they would yeah uh release it they would you know give it an awards campaign etc um because he wanted <laughs> to film this movie for <laughs> sorry girl um because like he had been trying to make this movie for a while and they just didn't have right. financing. Right. So you can imagine that when contract conversations were coming up for Batman, that this movie got, yeah. you know, was part of the agreement. Yeah. 2016 in general for Warner Brothers is a hell of a year, let's say. Oof. Um just a lot of I wrote in in our outline. We I just could wrote, do a mini series on Warner Brothers twenty sixteen. Warner Brothers floppiana of a twenty sixteen because like it's it's genuinely it's Batman versus Superman, which is greeted with such hostility uh, and and such sort of um, you know this not to this is beyond, before even you know Snyder cut becomes a thing, but this is the film before that. And genuinely the most unpleasant movie going experience of my lifetime, I think. Not even, yes, not even leavened by what I think, for as much as Justice League is not a good movie, I do think it's leavened by the fact that, like, every few minutes we hop to a different, like, now we're with Aquaman and now we're with The Flesh and now we're with Wonder Woman. And it's just like, okay, well, like, at least I'm not, you know, in this drudgery of just like, oh my God, Batman and Superman, like kiss or kill each other. Like one of the two, for God's sake. Um, there's also though, a future 
best uh, the t- future this i almost said future best picture winner which no it was not future this had oscar buzz uh, uh film collateral beauty which was their other december film besides their other big december film besides live by night which like what a one-two punch truly 10 percent of my personality is collateral beauty yeah i think that's right i think that's right um, we mentioned The Accountant, that was also Warner Brothers. We mentioned Suicide Squad alongside Batman or Superman, which, like, truly just antagonizing the public, or antagonizing um, <laughs> cinephiles more than anything else. I guess the public sort of had their own interpretation of whatever Oscar uh, winner, right? Winner? Suicide Squad? For makeup? Yeah, makeup. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they also had War Dogs, which is another movie that just like made me mad that it existed and uh, ended up getting a Golden Globe right, nomination right, for right, Jonah right. Hill. Uh, the weird bright spots for Warner Brothers that year, I think, which also sort of tells you what kind of a year it was, that like the bright spots were Sully and the Nice Guys. Ugh. Sully, which I think is... is I hate co- Sully. Yeah, a pretty... Um, not much of anything for me. The Nice Guys I really enjoyed. The Nice Guys I thought was a very fun time at the movies, and I really loved Ryan Gosling and Russell Crowe in that. But, like, that's another movie that, like, by the end of that year, nobody was really talking about it, which is too bad, but, like, was the case. I remember at one point in the 2016 awards conversation when we were trying to sort of predict who would end up with Best Actor nominations, and I remember at some point we were all just like, is it just going to be Tom Hanks and Sully getting a nomination? Because like, there's not really much anything else on the slate. And it ended up being Viggo Mortensen and Captain Fantastic, which is equally puzzling, but in a very different kind of a way. But um, yeah, it's just a weird, weird flop, uh, flop stravaganza for Warner Brothers in 2016, which, you know, kind of is typified then by Live By Night at the end of the year, because this movie gets released Christmas Day, you know, platform release. It's released. It it gets its platform release the same day that Hidden Figures gets its platform release, and like you could not line up two movies next to each other more sort of goofus and gallant of the 2016 award season than <laughs> Hidden Figures and Live My Night, both movies which were originally supposed to be January releases, or at least like supposed to be in question marks with Live My Night. I think Hidden Figures mm-hmm. was genuinely supposed to be a January release, and. People saw scenes from it. Figures, I don't think, was late until was ready until late, um, right? Because like I remember that TIFF they didn't. Right. Um, they showed scenes from it. it. They didn't have the movie ready, but they did like a concert and showed clips from it. Yes, and I think that was a genuine groundswell. Where once people started seeing stuff from it, people were like, "Oh, this could be like." A huge crowd pleaser because they because I think the first trailer announces a like mid to late January release date, and I remember thinking like eight billion people are going to go see this movie and love the shit out of it. It just looks like such a absolute like you know rousing crowd pleasing like delight of a movie that people are going to love, and I think mm-hmm. enough people with more positions of power than me sort of had similar thoughts. Cause they were just like, well, we could do something with this. And they moved it to a qualifying release at the end of the year. And it obviously did very well, got a best picture nomination and um, screen actors guild win for best ensemble, which was super rad. Mm-hmm. Um, awesome. One of the more underrated uh, awards moments of the last 10 years is that SAG win for hidden figures um, and Taraji's speech from it was you know super wonderful so like that movie 
A, did all the right things, but B, had the stuff, had the goods to do all the right things mm-hmm. with. And I think everything that Live by Night wasn't, Hidden Figures was, in, including conversation, which there was so much conversation around Hidden Figures. And Live by Night opens and absolute crickets. Well, and when it did its wide release, it never broke the top 10. I Here's the thing. I feel like Live by Night, by the time it was finally released, was so much of an afterthought. We didn't really even notice it bombing when it did. Because, like, my in my memory, it was there and just, like, existed in theaters for a while. Yeah. No, it was basically yanked from theaters as soon as it hit its wide release because it bombed so hard. Right. This movie, like, this has to be one of the lower grossing movies we've done in a while, um, which yeah. surprised me. It only made, like, 10 million U.S. Yeah. Yeah, 10 million U.S. I think uh, the total worldwide was only something like 22 and the i mean as so much as you can never trust what a listed production budget of a movie is but somewhere in between 60 and 90 million dollars and so like that's a huge like that's a crater and i guess it's not one of the lowest of the movies we've done recently we've done some actual like bombs but yeah yeah, like it, it what was more surprising to me is not necessarily how much it cratered but how much like we didn't notice it cratering at the time. Right. It was just like we were happy to ignore the movie right. entirely. Right. But like 2016 is a really exciting year. Um like you obviously mentioned Hidden Figures which at the same time was becoming a genuine box office smash. Yeah. You have like Movies like Arrival and La La Land doing a hundred million dollars, which like feels rare. Right. Like Moonlight was still on the rise. Right. Well, we also, you know, forget that like so much about fall of twenty sixteen was so fraught anyway, with, you know, obviously the election and all of that. And I think mm-hmm. a lot of that year's Oscar race crystallized early, where like La La Land was pretty much set in stone from the fall festivals. And the only real movement was with everything else was kind of hidden figures sort of becoming a bigger and bigger deal. And how, how far can Moonlight go? How far can, you know, we ride this beloved but tiny, you know, little film? And then that was the sort of the momentum of the season was sort of just like riding it with moonlight but like arrival was a november movie uh la la land i think was an october movie if i'm not bis- mistaken um uh no it was closer to christmas was it closer to christmas okay mm-hmm. um but like hexar ridge i'm pretty sure was fall and hell or high water was summer was late summer and Lion and Manchester by the Sea, I'm pretty sure, were Thanksgiving. Maybe Lion was Christmas, too. No, I think you're right. I Fences think Lion was, was Thanksgiving. Um, so, yeah, it just felt like, yeah, Manchester, I think, was early November. I don't know. Um, I think Fences was another one it of the later ones. It almost makes it seem like, again, I'm trying to not read too much into it, but, like, the uh the qualifying release and like awards attempt at this movie was a little bit more of a contractual vanity thing than the studio's actual intention you know because otherwise like i don't think they would have necessarily let it die the way that they did because like awards campaigns are expensive yeah yeah totally 
What did you think of Elle Fanning in this movie? Uh, I love Elle Fanning. This is our, what, fifth Elle Fanning? Our fourth. Um, fourth. After fourth. Somewhere and Door on the Floor and Reservation Road. Yes. Um, I mean, like, I just, I feel bad for all of the women in this movie because, like, when I say you could extricate a character and, like, the movie could move along the way that it wants to, like, it's unfortunately true of all of the female characters this movie yeah. only cares up to a point yeah. about all of the women in it well she gets about um, a good 10 minutes of this movie that it feels like she's like a big deal and i think she's miscast i think she's miscast it's it's definitely the most outside her wheelhouse that i've ever really seen her in a movie and that sort of includes when she's played a uh alien she's an alien in that movie right the Nicole Kidman movie? Yeah. Yes, I, I love that movie. <laughs> yes, I know you do. That's why I asked. Uh, that's, I knew you would be the, the resource I would go to. Um, yes, no, I think she she's, is an I alien. think she's much, much more aptly cast as an alien than she is as a uh, charismatic preacher. But that is sort of the, the moment that this movie sort of affords her. And she's, again, very important to the plot of the movie for a very limited time. She has kind of two big scenes with Affleck, the one right in the revival tent after she gives her sermon, and then the big one where they meet for whatever, brunch or something like that, and she talks about how, you know, this is heaven and all this sort of stuff, this sort of profound stuff that I think is supposed to be just supposed to land, I think, with a little bit more of an effect with us than we don't, because he mentions it again at the Mm -hmm. end of the movie, where it's like, as Loretta said, this is heaven. And it's just like, I guess that's the theme of the, I guess that's what we're going with as a theme. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I think miscast is probably the right word. I think it's for whatever that role was maybe supposed to be. I don't know if we're getting it from her performance. Like, I don't think I I get, it certainly doesn't convince that she would like, a mass a yes, following that's sort of what to I mean. block that's, the building of a casino. But. Yes, that's sort of what I mean. Yes. Especially because her father, who is the Chris Cooper, who plays the sort of uh, the lawman in town, the, the sheriff or whatever, um, doesn't, like, I would get it if, like, he was also a preacher and who he had also this, like, huge following and she was the daughter of a preacher, where it's just like, I get that, like, she's the cautionary tale for the temperance thing of just, like, look at what this world of vice and sin does. and Look at her track marks and all this stuff. But to make that next leap to, oh, then she becomes the fire and brimstone preacher. And again, like you said, blocks the building of this casino that has, like, quite a bit of economic interest for a lot of people in town. Feels like a leap that the the movie does not quite... uh, have the hops to clear it's a bad movie chris it's a terrible movie and like i was looking at some of the reviews and the reception for it and i feel like people were very kind towards it maybe it's just everyone's exhausted at the end of the year but like yeah it was way more mild than i expected for what the result of this really like messy inert movie is um yeah i don't know Maybe Ben Affleck will come back and direct a better movie than this. It feels like his most ambitious movie because even though like the town has these set pieces and stuff, right? Right. 
all of his movies before this are very like narratively insular. Right. And this tries to be a lot of different things and have a lot of different themes and a lot of different characters and he doesn't have any control over it. Um I think the the big failings of this movie beyond the sort of like the narrative and, and characterizations or whatever are you need this movie to have a really transporting sense of place. And mm-hmm. like you know, it's 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 a old style gangster organized crime really epic you know it's going for epic that is set in tampa florida which like all due respect to the kings of tampa like is not quite lady a a uh glamorous city and i think that's sort of the point at one point somebody who i think it's messina calls uh uh ybor city which is the area of town that they get set up in which by the way i've been to ybor city ybor city is sort of like the um young hip sort of area of tampa i remember i went there when we were we had a uh a summer or whatever spring break trip uh that i went with the uh, high school baseball team down to florida and we had like an afternoon where we could go to ybor city and it's just sort of like young and hip and you can you know like go to a weed shop or something like that all the sort of like weird funny stuff in ybor city but he calls it the harlem of tampa which is such a funny phrase to me just on its face like i get what they were going with um and it like is probably apt as a descriptor of that uh, time period but like the harlem of tampa made me laugh um but you should have again if it's this is this odd little location that hasn't really been done to death in movies it's the only thing about this movie that doesn't feel incredibly derivative about other things, then like that has to be your thing. You really have to give a really concrete sense of vibrant time and place. And the movie doesn't do it, just doesn't come up with it. Yeah. Um, even shot by like the great Robert Richardson. Right. It's like very like, I, I don't want to say heightened, but like, but also muted. Like, I feel like the color palette yeah, is really it's muted. Like vibrantly muddled. It's yeah. it's not pretty to look at, but no. it's certainly going for a certain type of vibe. Right. Um, I don't know. And I think the other thing that it doesn't really pull off is this hotel siege at the end of the movie where Messina and the other, you know, Affleck loyal gangsters come up from the tunnels below the city to take take the hotel and and foil the Italian mobster who has now partnered with that's the other thing about this fucking plot twist the Italian mo- mobster sort of unveils his long ago rival the Irish mobster and they've decided to team up against Ben Affleck which seems like overkill to me it seems to me it's one of those things where it's like would this have really happened like to anybody to anybody who's not a character played by Ben Affleck who's not like the main character in this movie like it feels like the only reason this plot twist like feels at all supportable is because it's a you know you never would have expected the big Italian mob boss and the big Irish mob boss to team up against Ben Affleck and if you take a step back you're just like why are they doing this for this like one little like mid-level gangster in Florida like okay <laughs> all right man um but that whole siege of the hotel again hard to tell uh what crime group is which right so like that whole scene no idea what I was watching but it's supposed to be I think this big sort of like spectacular action scene it's supposed to be thrilling and it's supposed to be sort of visually dynamic and all this stuff and it's just like <laughs> to the point where this like 1930s 1940s 
uh, gangster movie has Ben Affleck John Woo style, like sideways <laughs> jumping, like while he's horizontal in the air, firing a gun. I was like, okay, Chow Yun Fat, calm down. Yeah. I was like, this is this is a little absurd. You watch you watch the killer and face off a bunch, and you said, let me put that in my uh, right. period movie. A lot of interesting character actor uh, sort of pop-ups in this movie. I didn't mention uh, Matthew Marr in this movie as the brother-in-law of Chris Cooper, who's also the like the head honcho clan guy who I mostly know from seeing in plays around the city. He was in the uh, Mr. Burns, a post, uh, post-nuclear play, which I thought was very good. Um, I've seen him in Also in stuff. The Flick, right? Also in The Flick, which I also saw. Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, who else shows up in this movie? Max Casella, who I will always know first and foremost as Doogie Hauser's best friend from Doogie Hauser MD, <laughs> plays the Italian mobster's <laughs> son who sort of hates Affleck's character. Uh, Clark Gregg. Oh, I love him. He's, um, uh, Jack Valenti and Jackie, right? Yeah, yes, yes, he is. So good. Um, Anthony Michael Hall shows up in this movie for a scene as sort of a mid level, uh, boss that they have to get rid of and clark gregg shows up as a easily black malleable homosexual which we always love in these films um but again a lot of character actors that like i don't know i don't know if it adds up to much in the end again just give me a whole movie about sienna miller in her little miami uh uh hanging up clothes on the clothesline in miami i don't know i loved that i did love that can we talk about a little bit more about him not getting nominated for best director for Argo? Sure. I feel like we kind of glossed by that. Yeah. We talked about that a few weeks ago, but yeah, let's do that again. Did we? I completely forgot that we did. We did. We brought up, uh, uh, the whole, the, the, uh, the critics choice of it at all, but yeah, we, it was briefly, we can, you know, let's get into it. Okay. So, but why, what do you think is going on there? I mean, I think there were some whispers that, like, ultimately Ben Affleck was not well-liked um, as a person. Uh, I definitely read, like, gossip sites saying that one of his uh, competitors was telling people not to vote for him. Really? Oh, tell this story. I have not heard this. Uh, that This was just, like, in the days of, like, reading gossip columns so take of that what you will all right Um, wait i'm bringing now i'm bringing up the i think there's some assumption though that it was an unlikability of affleck factor and it's like this is the industry that's voting for it too and it's not like the dga which is a much wider group of directors than the oscar directing branch is right um i all i mean like that's one thing I more so think because of like what ultimately went down in best director that year is that there might have been more of an overconfidence factor and a lot of like darling directors, like the type of people that, uh, you know, people are like rooting for. So they put their passion vote behind was going to other people like Michael Hanukkah and Ben Seitlin. Um, So, right. So here's what, because like this, this was the director year that, like, multiple Oscar-winning directors like Catherine Bigelow, Tom Hooper, right. uh, Tarantino didn't get nominated. And people thought, like, 
Affleck and Bigelow both missing out on Best Director nominations was a shock. Like, we, we talk about Affleck a lot more yeah. because Argo ends up winning Best Picture. But, like, Bigelow also not getting nominated was a shock. And that was amid a lot of that, like, there was the controversy and uh, over Zero Dark Thirty yeah. and well, the torture scenes uh, even, and whatnot. Uh, it was less so for um, Tarantino, but even Tom Hooper at the time, like... This yeah. was like right at the nomination morning was right at the point where the wind was kind of taken out of Les Mis's sails. Yeah. But like that was a hit movie. Like yeah. there was a time where people thought Tom Hooper was going to get nominated again. So of the best director nominees that year, Ang Lee for Life of Pi, Michael Haneke for Amour, Ben Zeitlin, Beast of the Southern Wild, Steven Spielberg for Lincoln, David O. Russell for Silver Linings Playbook. Who was the one talking shit about Ben Affleck behind the scenes? <laughs> if I had to guess? Yeah. Spielberg. Really? Oh, I would have gone with David People O. Russell, but I Steven love Spielberg your interpretation. Spielberg is this nice guy. <gasps> and like I Spielberg, I, I adore him, but like you just don't get that type of power in the industry if you're not also a jerk sometimes. I, but, like, I love him, but love like... It. My initial thought was David O. Russell. His his set's like a machine, yeah. man. Like he's... He knows what he's doing. I guess because... That's also just a guess because, like, if it was somebody that people were going to listen to, if a fellow director said, don't vote for Ben Affleck, they'd probably listen to Spielberg. That's a good point. That's a really, oh boy. Well, now this is going to, that's going to linger in my mind. Oh, I love that. Maybe I also just feel like I love Angley, obviously, but like, I also still don't understand how Lincoln didn't get arrested that season and, like, I think the Wait. authorial voice on Lincoln is Tony Kushner, not Steven Spielberg. But I was always, like, surprised that Spielberg was kind of thrown off in conversations that year. Like, oh, Spielberg won't win. Let's contextualize didn't get arrested. Because 12 nominations to lead the pack sure, isn't exactly but, like, It was treated like it was the boring movie. It was. It was. It only won two. Right. No, I know. Though, I mean, maybe part of part of that is, like, it was just so blatantly obvious that, you know, Daniel Day-Lewis was going to win. Right. And, like, I think the, the Oscar habit nowadays is really about spreading the love. So it's like, if you have a performance that's likely to win, right. they're going to feel less likely to vote for you elsewhere. You I know, think... So that they can... Yeah. I think share the, the one award that Lincoln didn't win that that was most not exactly puzzling because of what was happening everywhere else that night but the fact that argo beats lincoln in adapted screenplay that's the one where i'm just like unwell come on, guys come on guys especially because what what is great about lincoln feels very screenplay based the fact that it's not the movie you're expecting is Absolutely. very much the credit to kushner's screenplay whereas like i get why you're not really clamoring to give Spielberg Oscar number three for this movie that is not sort of, you know, taking the nation by storm or anything like that. I was very happy with Ang Lee getting one for Life of Pi. I, of course, uh, like Life of Pi probably more than most people. And... One of our finest working directors. Yeah, and I think, and I, you know, the, the um, sort of oddity of Ang Lee having to best director wins and zero best picture wins is uh intriguing he and uh, alfonso coron should start a i don't know a club or a sub stack or something like that where they just <laughs> you know talk about that um 2012 is a really really interesting oscar year even if a lot of the nominees that year you're sort of just like 
you know, a little bit of a side eye towards. Mostly I'm talking about Les Miserables. Um, <laughs> and even that movie, again, I was caught up in it at the time. Um, but yeah, it's a really interesting one. I think this was... Was this one of the years where they switched up the calendar where the, the voting window wasn't what it once was? I feel like this is where the Golden Globes... That's always so hard to keep track the of. The Golden Globes started having a little bit less of a, uh influencer role because Oscar voting windows were uh, moved up. I don't know. I don't know. I cannot remember. Something. Something like yeah. that. But yeah, a really interesting year. I want to talk about 2016, though and live by night because you t- just sort of that the environment that it was sort of like being dropped into at the end of that year it's a really good year have we we talked about this i think irl this week right about how 2016 might end up being like yeah. one of the most oh, amazing one years. of the best movie years i would not i mean like it has you know probably one of the best best picture winners of our lifetime but like across the board i don't think it's a great oscar year um but a film year though though. like some of the winners i do love um but as a film year incredible i was looking through my like i brought up my you know my own list to look through that year just to sort of get a sense of what that year was and like every single major category is like 15 deep with just really incredibly very deserving um movies that i still love i still go back and i watch you know today i say today again a whole five years later but yeah um it's an incredible year and (laughs) obviously live by night uh, was never going to compare but yeah you're right arrival being a nominee moonlight obviously being a winner i really loved manchester by the sea i really loved jackie uh i really loved fences i really liked 20th century women. yeah oh my god i mean 20th century women does not get the nominations that it deserves but like phenomenal movie um la la land i will you know it's so my journey with la la land is very strange i've Initially, when I saw it at Toronto, very much felt like the turd in the punch bowl about it when I kept being like, but it really lags in the middle, guys. And everybody was like, shut up. And then the backlash <laughs> happens. And then I'm the one being like, yeah, but the beginning and the end are really good, you guys. And everybody was like, this is trash. Jazz is stupid. <laughs> and I was just like, okay, I don't know where to land on this one with everybody. But uh, I think now I I feel like I'm more of a La La Land defender for as much as, you know, that movie needs defending. But um, yeah, it's a really, really interesting year. The Lobster is that year. We're both big fans of Scorsese's Silence. Yeah, Silence just misses my top 10. I'm looking at it right now. Uh, my top 10 that year was Arrival, American Honey, which... God, American Honey. What a wonderful movie. 20th Century Women, Moonlight, Little Men, Ira Sachs's Little Men. Incredible. Manchester by the Sea, The Invitation, the wonderful, uh, unexpected Karen Kusama movie, The Invitation, which I fucking love. Mountains May Depart, Jackie, and Hail Caesar. And then, like, right after that is, like, Silence and Little or uh, little Women. I almost said Certain Women. Uh, Kelly Records, Certain Women. <laughs> certain Little Women. <laughs> Um, this is this is like a year, one of those movie years that's so good that it's like a top ten is so insufficient right. to really like say what the year was and like say the movies that really right. like spoke to you, moved you, right. 
etc. Mine's like fluctuated a lot and I'm sure it'll continue to fluctuate. My top 10 uh, is The Handmaiden. Where are you going? 10 to 1 or 1 to 10? Uh, I'm doing 10 to 1. Uh, The Handmaiden, The Lobster, The Aforementioned Exceptional, uh, Iris Axe's Little Men, Things to Come. I am Ah. the weird outlier in the one-two punch of uh, what Isabelle Huppert did that year. Um, I would vote for Things to Come, not only just as a movie, but as her performance. Both are incredible all around, but like that's that's the one that speaks to me. Um, Luca Guadagnino's A Bigger Splash. That is his best movie. Uh, Jackie Arrival. Tony Erdman, which has like, since I first saw it, grown so much in my mind and spoken like so much to like me and my emotional state yeah um and then moonlight and 20th century women tony erdman is a movie that i think i saw way too late i think the the hype on it was so large by the time i saw it and then i saw it and i was just like i'm not i'm not feeling it but it also opened very late too and like that's a lot of movie yeah <laughs> it's literally like, it, it's got a lot of depth to it that like i think a lot of people saw it and i include myself in this that like we saw it at the busiest time yeah. of oscar season and it you you do need some room to kind of process what it's doing right. like the like global industrial implications of the movie and the personal ones and like how they work together yeah. and like how the movie is funny and tragic. Like it's, it's, uh, I can't imagine like the can reception of that movie was so like, uh, warm and smart and gracious that I'm like, I can't imagine having seen that movie at a festival and then have to process a dozen other movies around it. Yeah. It's a movie that I think needs some space. Yeah. But it's a masterpiece. The one precursor award nomination afforded to live by night. Uh, among like literally almost anything anywhere was it got a production design nomination at the critics choice that year um and i'm trying to find okay yes so it gets nominated for best production design critics choice the winner that year was la la land other nominees were arrival which has very you know obviously the production design with those uh the alien pods and sort of the different timelines happening here and there and all the little, like obviously like the little tchotchkes in uh, her apartment. I think that's a really good nomination. Jackie, again, no brainer. The aesthetics on Jackie were really fantastic. Fantastic beasts and where to find them wins the Oscar, right? Or is that costume? Uh, I'm pretty sure La La Land won this Oscar. Fantastic beast definitely won the costume. Yeah, that's what it was. Oscar. Yeah. And then Live My Night, which again, I talked about how I don't love. I think they fell short when it came to sort of designing the time and place of this setting. So I get why this seems like a production designy kind of a movie, but like as you're one of the top five, that felt to me like Critics' Choice was reaching. Uh, lazy nomination. Yeah. Yes. And again, so much good stuff that year that it feels like I don't understand where, you know, why a lazy nomination would happen. Again, even stuff that's like big and gaudy and you don't even have to like be that 
you know, looking for it to find. Like, Hell Caesar has so much amazing, like, production design in that film, what's going on in that movie. And got the Oscar nomination when, like, really there was no campaign for that movie whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, anyway, what are uh, any other sort of stray spare thoughts for this film? Um... Uh, it's hard to have a full thought about this film. It is. It is. I wanted to talk a little bit about Oscar movies, uh, uh, mob movies with Oscar and sort of the history of it. Obviously, The Godfather being such a huge figure in terms of uh, both Hollywood, but also like the Academy Awards. It wins Best Picture for The Godfather and The Godfather Part 2 is nominated again for Godfather Part 3 in 1990. Um. But, like, in the last 20 years, the only person who really gets nominated for making gangster movies is Martin Scorsese. Like, he's, you know, with The Irishman uh, last year, with The Departed obviously winning 2006. Gangs of New York is a different kind of a organized crime movie, but it's a, you know, mob movie. And then you really have to go back to, like, Bugsy and uh, you know Pritzi's Honor in uh, in the eighties and that kind of a thing to really get into Oscar and mob movies and I I think Oscar the history of Oscar and crime is sort of a very like long and interesting one anyway and certain things about movies that have big like crime elements are deemed Oscary and so other ones are deemed maybe too lurid and that definition fluctuates and and moves all the time so it's always a little hard to think of like oh is that going to be too much for you know oscar voters and sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't and i don't know i find that kind of fascinating i mean the thing about scorsese i think is uh, you know whatever the crime setting is it's just setting like it's it's that's not really the emphasis like the irishman is not about just like the assassination of jimmy hoffa right, right? like it right. is about you know aging dying uh committing yourself to a job you know it his, those movies are about like other things in a world of crime right whereas like something like live by night is just yeah I mean, like, what what are the themes of this movie? What is the character explanation exploration of this movie? Right. Like, right. what ideas does Ben Affleck have that he's exploring in this movie? Right. And I I don't really think there is anything. Right. Again, we talk about like the thing on the poster. It's like, is this a movie about a good man gone bad? Like, not really. Is this a movie at the end about like this is you know this is heaven us right here? Not really. You know, it keeps trying to sort of in- introduce these themes that don't ring true. Because mm-hmm. ultimately, there isn't a whole lot of there there not to you know or aren't grounded in phrase, you know but, like uh, relationships, people, yeah. character. So, do we want to just move into our IMDb game, Chris? Let's do it, guys. Every week, we end our episode with the IMDb game, where we challenge each other with an actor or actress to try to guess the top four titles that IMDb says they are most known for. If any of those titles are television or voiceover work, we'll mention that up front. After two wrong guesses, we get the remaining titles' release years as a clue. If that's not enough, it just becomes a free-for-all of hints. 
living by night. <laughs> okay, that's one more thing I did want to mention. In some of the uh, junket interviews and stuff like that, where with Affleck, he, in all of them, tries to explain what living by night means. And it's oh, just Jesus. like, and it's so no. weirdly facile, where it's just like, you know, he's living by night. You know, he's not living by the rules of daytime. And I'm just like, what are you talking about? What are the rules of daytime? I'm just like, and I think this he's trying. He's trying to right, exactly. He's just trying to get like he's living like off of the grid or whatever, like outside the law. And I'm just like, then just say outside the law. But like, it sounds so dumb when you're just like he's living by the rules of daytime. Oh my god! <laughs> Shut up. Um, uh, sorry. No. All right. So, all right. IMDb game. I want to give to you, but I want to give you the choice between okay. the hard one or the easy one. The harder I one mean, or the easier one. Let's say that. <laughs> they're not they think they're both uh yeah. Anyway. Oh, uh, okay. Um well uh let's um geez, I feel like you've backed me into a corner where like I look like I'm a coward <gasps> if I say Have I? give me the easier one. Have I? I can't imagine. Is this I would some never. type of trickery? No, no, there's no trickery. But now I do feel, now I do recognize what you're saying. And that is true. I have done that to you. And I'm sorry, but also I'm amused. <laughs> Fine. Give me the more difficult option. All right. So um, I wanted to pick somebody from Ben Affleck's filmography. I went into the cast of Gone Baby Gone. One of the actresses in that film who I have always loved uh, in pretty much everything that she does, is uh, Amy Madigan. So, I love Amy Madigan. I love Amy Madigan, too. There's no television in Amy Madigan. Um, speaking of HBO dramas, there's no Carnival uh, or anything else. So, <laughs> yeah, no television, no voiceover work. Give me the known for for Amy Madigan. Okay, the thing about Amy Madigan, she is an Oscar nominee for a movie that I don't know how to get a hold of if it's even out it might be rentable more things are rentable now than they have been yeah um is she for but i don't cross creek what is she or not cross creek no um, it's uh, uh twice in a lifetime What's yeah something like that for? but I, I know it's not on there cross creek um, is mary steen version and alfred woodard yes twice in a lifetime 1980 yes. 1985 uh, twice in a lifetime that is not by uh, i'm just gonna give that to one for free, your in- your your instinct is correct that it's not one of them. So I'm, that's a free guess. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, I wonder if Gone Baby Gone is on there. So I'm not. I'm gonna keep that in my back pocket at this point. But I'm gonna say Field of Dreams. Field of Dreams, my favorite Amy Madigan performance. I think she's so <laughs> incredibly charismatic and fun and wonderful. And the scene where she tells off Lee Garlington uh, about uh, banning books and calls her a Nazi cow is <laughs> just one of my favorite scenes. At least he is not a book burner, you Nazi cow. Uh, okay, I'm going to guess my favorite Amy Madigan performance. Um, uh in uncle buck (laughs) i knew you were going to guess that and you're absolutely correct uncle buck is yes uncle buck is there amy madigan and laurie metcalf playing the like warring uh uh love interests (laughs) for john candy in that movie is amazing is absolutely amazing is it okay so what was going on in supporting actress that year that she wasn't nominated for field of dreams 
I say this all the time. The fact that Field of Dreams is a Best Picture nominee, and yet neither James Earl Jones nor Amy Madigan even got a sniff of award season attention is insane to me. Because A, James Earl Jones is like the classic, like, spotlight. He gets a big fucking speech in that movie. Like, it's a whole, like, it could not be a more of a featured supporting player kind of a performance. And also, he's an incredibly well-respected actor. And, like, blows my mind that there wasn't, that nothing came of that. And also, again, and you're right, the supportive wife role, which is like a trope with the Oscars, that, like happens all the time and yet she's like the best example of it where like she's not just some like dish rag of a like supportive wife she's super fun and like charismatic and nothing absolutely nothing 89 supporting and actress was is a best picture nominee that i always forget is a best picture nominee because i think yeah. as far as like its oscar footprint goes it kind of doesn't have one right like I think when we think of like Oscar movies, it's usually like there's got to be some type of right. it win was, or acting as a nomination associated to it. It was the Best Picture nominee with only three nominations total. It was Picture Writing and then James Horner's wonderful score for that movie was also nominated. But it was definitely like the sentimental choice, the fifth nominee, um, you know, the Best Picture nominee without a director, like that kind of a thing. And it was... Again, for the detractors of Field of Dreams, which there are, you know, several, think it's hokey. Think I don't it's think cheesy. it's a movie that I would like. Oh, I, you've never seen it? I, Here's I, what I will since say. I was a kid. I don't really have. I, I, I remember her big scene and like the ending. It's very, very, very sentimental about baseball and fathers and sons. And I get where like that's oh, like not your genre, but like I absolutely adore it anyway um 89 <laughs> best supporting actress obviously brenda fricker wins that year and we love brenda fricker for uh yeah. for her career but also my left foot but like 89 is the year that like both angelica houston and lena olin are nominated for enemies a love story diane weist for parenthood which is a cool nomination <laughs> um but not a performance that i think about a ton and then julia right. roberts and in steel magnolias won. yeah mm. Yes. So yeah, I would put Amy Madigan above all of them. Anyway, you're chief for two. Um, okay. More Amy Madigan. Uh, I'm glad that I bought I love that we got time, that little digression. Remember. An Amy Madigan digression. <laughs> I live. Um, she's not. I don't think it's a supportive wife, but I do remember her in Places in the Heart. She is in Places in the Heart. That's not a correct answer, but uh, that's not a bad mm. guess. The only other thing leaping to my mind is Pollock, which she is the, the like makeup and styling they put on her is wild. Look Buy a Amy nose, Madigan, Amy Pollock. Madigan and Pollock. Imagine. Yeah, yeah. Well, wait, Pollock showed up for somebody else. I'm gonna guess Pollock. Incorrect. Uh, that is your second strike. But like again, not a bad guess. Yeah, Amy Madigan playing um, horny Peggy Guggenheim. In, in Pollock, which I, you love the choice, obviously. That's right, she's Peggy Guggenheim. Yes, uh, and and uh, Randy is all get out for Jackson Pollock in that film. Obviously, her real-life husband or partner, I don't know if they're one of those couples who never got married because of, uh, you know, society. Um, Ed Harris, her and Ed Harris. Anyway, all right, so your two missing years are 1984 and 2007. Oh, well, 07's Gone Baby Gone, so you were, I should yes. have said that already. You were, yes, you um, were correct in your instinct for Gone Baby Gone. 
84. And this is what makes this Oscar hard. Nomination. This is what makes this one hard. I don't know if you've ever, if you have familiarity with this movie, but we'll see. Um, it is from a director who is like made. Hold on a second. I want to bring up his filmography really quickly. Um, Directed a bunch of really well-known 80s movies that were, like, crowd-pleaser, hit movies. I don't think these are movies that, like, are Chris File specials, but... Ah. um, So, action movies. And he directed a really, really offensive movie a few years ago. Actually, in the same year as as Live By Night. um, That was, like... I'm pretty sure it was direct to video, but like even as a direct to video movie, everybody was like, "This is offensive," and that was the uh, most recent film wow. he ever directed. I can't think of it. Um, offensive along, uh, let's say, gender lines. Was it like transphobic? Oh yeah! Oh yeah! Oh, okay. In like in like the plot of it. Like oh, the whole yikes. like the log line for it. You read the log line and you're just like, absolutely not. Starring um, um uh one of our beloved widows. Oh, there was that Michelle Rodriguez movie. Yes. Yikes. I don't one. know who directed that. Yeah. Um this guy directed a bunch of Eddie Murphy comedies in the 80s that are really well known. Like Beverly Hills Cop? Uh, no, the other uh, sort of action comedies that he made in the 80s. 48 Hours. Yes. Don't know who directed that. <laughs> yeah, this one's going to be tough for you. Um, I'll just describe it and then I'll just give it to you. This was... Diane Lane's in this movie, Michael Pare is in this movie, Rick Moranis, Amy Madigan, Willem Dafoe. What? Uh, Rick Rossovich, Bill Paxton. The logline is, a mercenary is hired to rescue his ex-girlfriend, a singer who has been kidnapped by a motorcycle gang. Which works for this director because he also directed The Warriors. Walter Hill. Yeah, it's Walter Hill. Still don't know what this movie yeah. is. Um, I'll tell you in a second. I just want to look at the poster for a second. The tagline, the poster is this very sort of like, um, almost like chalk painting kind of a this street scene of a, a sort of streets in chaos. And it's this very sort of like, probably looking like a streetwalker lady, like hanging on the arm of this guy in a duster with a rifle and it says tonight is what it means to be young so truly uh it's called streets of fire (laughs) yeah streets of fire the other tagline is a rock and roll fable i have never seen it but i've definitely heard of it and sounds like very 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 80s sort of music video uh aesthetics I don't know. Maybe I'll see it. Well, uh, listeners, it was let a us Razzie nominee. Deserves to be in Amy Madigan's uh, known for Razzie nominee for Diane Lane. Although that was a shared nomination with the Cotton Club, so I think it was mostly a nomination for the Cotton Club. But anyway, yes, leave Diane Lane alone. Amy Madigan in Streets of Fire. Yeah, kind of an odd. That was what. That's what makes that one 
That's why I said that's a hard one because I was like, he's going to get three of them, and he has pretty much no shot at the fourth one. So, well, damn. Hit me with yours. Okay, so for you, I also went back into Ben Affleck actors. Um, this is someone who I believe we both love. I think you love this actor. We maybe have talked about him before. Um, great character actor. Usually shows up in things that I am so happy to see him in and liking very little of what's going on around him. Uh, it is Scoot McNary. Scoot! Any TV? No TV. Dang. All right. No Halt and Catch Fire. I get it. I get it. Even though it was a great show, I get it. He's great um, on that show. So good on that show. All right. Argo. Argo, correct. See, the thing about Scoot McNary is we love him, but he sometimes blends in very well, very successfully Perhaps. with the. Uh, with his cast, I'm going to say, because this movie shows up for a lot of people, 12 Years a Slave. 12 Years a Slave. He has two Best Picture winners and is known for. Two adjacent Best Picture winners. Spoiler yes. alert, the other two were not Best Picture winners. Is one of them Monsters? Damn it, you got Monsters. <laughs> it's, his break, it's his breakthrough movie. Yeah. Um, yeah. I still haven't seen that. I thought it got a little oversold to me, although there's at least one scene of sort of uh, about with the monsters that I think is like really amazing and probably worth seeing it for. It got a lot of credit for being made for no money and looking like it was very expensive. Yes. Yeah. It's worth seeing. It's absolutely worth seeing. Okay. So what's our fourth scoot? Scoot, scoot, scoot. And I think I you mean, have no wrong guesses yet. I thought I was giving you one that was very difficult. And if you get this, I don't know who I'm going to have to give you to break this <laughs> strong streak you are having, sir. Yeah, you got to knock me down a few pegs. Um, thought I was the only that. one that's jumping. The only one that's jumping to my mind right now, even though it's probably not correct, but I won't be able to think of anything else until I sh- throw it out there. Is he's the not a spoiler, but whatever. You should have seen this movie by now. He's the villain at the end of Nonstop. It is not Nonstop. nonstop. Damn it. I can't right. believe what he's the villain. He's the villain in Nonstop. Would have sworn from the trailer. Obviously, I've not seen that movie. Would have sworn from the trailer that it was Julianne Moore. Well, that's the thing about Nonstop, is that like because of the trailer, everybody was positive it's Julianne Moore. And even through the movie, you're really she's like the big red herring. And it is uh, ultimately not her. It's ultimately Scoot McNary, and I'm pretty sure Nate Parker, I think, are in cahoots Ooh. in some way. Um, but it's been a while since I saw Nonstop on opening night <laughs> in Union Square, like a psychopath, <laughs> because I was so excited to see Nonstop with a crowd. All right. Scoot. We're waiting on one more what? wrong answer before I give you the year. Yes, I know. Um, all right. What are like Scoot movies? I mean, I'm not going to say Frank yet, but like Frank shows up for other people in a way that has surprised me in the past. So I guess I'm not ruling it out. But maybe now I can't think of anything else if I say Frank. I'm going to say Frank. 
I fucking hate you. Ha <laughs> ha, it's Frank! <laughs> I partly so picked Scoot because it's funny that Frank shows up on a lot of people's known for. A lot of people's! It's so weird. Damn it, you got it. <laughs> I'm so mad. <laughs> I'm so mad. You're going to get I'm someone sorry. you have never heard of next week. I, I didn't get it four for four, you know? I didn't, I didn't sweep the board. I'm uh, fine. Whatever. All right. Good IMDb game, Chris. That was a fun time had by all. And by all, I mean me. Um, but that is our episode uh, on Live My Night. If you want more This Head Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thisheadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow our Twitter account at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Chris, where can the listeners find you and your stuff? You can find me on twitter.com at Chris V. File. That's F-E-I-L. Also on Letterboxd under the same name. Huzzah! I am also on Twitter at Joe Reed. I'm also on Letterboxd as Joe Reed. Reed spelled R-E-I-D. We would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever else you get podcasts. A five-star review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcasts visibility. So put on your nicest cream-colored suit and write us a review worthy of a Prohibition-era casino, won't you? That's all for this week. We hope you'll be back next week for more Abuzz. Abuzz.